want to invite you, invite you to uh, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And I want to ask you if you're able to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We read, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, you are glorious. Dear God, you are transcendent, you are supreme, you are powerful, you are awesome, you are mighty, you are strong. Oh, dear God, it humbles us to come into your presence. It humbles us as we offer up our worship to you, these spiritual sacrifices that we pray in your pity and your mercy you would accept. Oh, dear God, we need you tonight. We need your grace. Father God, we need the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Father, we need the Spirit to, to work here to take these words to use them, to impress them upon the hearts of those who hear, to open eyes, to open ears. Dear God, we just pray that the preaching of your word tonight would have a transformative impact upon all who partake of the service. It's in the name of your beloved Son, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Going to be looking at... Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus Christ, our Lord, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now tonight we are gathered to to study what is the sixth beatitude, and in my opinion, uh, of all the beatitudes, this indeed, I think, causes the most soul-searching. Um, to give you just a, a personal illustration from my own life, I have clear, vivid memories of myself when I was in middle school around that age. I remember uh, lying in my bed and reading the Gospel of Matthew. And I, I remember when I came to this verse, when I came to the saying of our Lord, it, it, it shocked me. Because, you know, I could read Jesus saying, blessed are the meek or blessed are the merciful. And I, you know, I could read about these different things and, and I think to myself, you know, I, I could probably do that one. You know, I, could, I, I think if I tried hard enough, I could be meek or if I tried hard enough, I could be merciful. And, you know, I'm, I don't know if I was dropped on my head or something, but, you know, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, I always kind of liked being an outsider. I never liked fitting in, so I'm like, you know, I, 
that sort of like appealed to me, and I thought, you know, I could do that if, if I really, really tried, but, but to be pure in heart. You see, you see how much different that is than even some of those other things? Because, I mean, even at that age, I knew I could never do that. I, and, and it was wrong of me to think this. It was, it was incorrect, but, but I really did think that if I just worked hard enough, even though, you know, Romans 9, it's not the one who wills, not the one who runs, but I thought that if I just ran hard enough, if I tried hard enough, if I exerted myself hard enough, if I just gave it enough energy that I could accomplish some of these other things. But, but to be pure in heart, I mean, I knew. I could never achieve that. There's nothing that I, I could not earn that. I mean, even at that age, I, I already had some sense of my you know, own sin, whether it be lust or, or anger. I was a very angry child. And you know, whatever the case may be, and, and I just... My heart's not, not pure. I, I, I knew that. I, I knew that I was impure. I knew that I was unworthy. I, I knew that my flesh loved things that God hated. I knew that I, I did things that were impure. I, and I have to confess, and although it is an impious thought, but it's one that I've repented of, I have to confess that the first time I ever encountered this verse when I was just reading it for myself, I didn't like it. Uh, I, I, I wished it wasn't there. I really, I, I genuinely wished that Jesus had not said these words because I knew that I, I could never truly have a pure heart. I, I knew that I could never do that. And, and if Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, then, then that, that must mean that to have Jesus' favor, for, for, for him to accept me and, and forgive me, then, then, then I need to make my heart pure. And, and, but I can't do that. I can't earn that. And that meant that I could never earn his love. I could never earn God's favor. And it's like funny how the Lord works because here all these years later, I'm, I'm standing before you, uh, vulnerable, and I'm preaching a sermon on this verse, and, and I love it. I love this text. I, I absolutely love this verse. Why the change? Because I now, hopefully, I pray, pray that this be the case. Hopefully, I think I understand it now. I don't think I understood it back then. You see, the first time I ever read, uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's lying in my bed, and I had with me my... and I blush as I say it, I had with me my NIV Teen Life Study Bible, which I still have a copy of. It's in my closet. It's in rather rough shape, but I can't get, can't get rid of it, of course. And Now, I don't know if you've ever seen an NIV Teen Life Study Bible, but if you are looking to invest some money in a theological library, I do not recommend an NIV Teen Life Study Bible, the notes in that study Bible are not overly concerned with, you know, context or what's the actual meaning of this thing or theology or like the stuff that matters, uh, you know, the things that are actually going to help you is all absent. And it's like, you know, I thought about this. Here's what's so funny about much of modern Christianity. With our great emphasis on, on, on life application, which is a good 
thing, a necessary thing, an important thing. The scripture transforms us. Absolutely vital that we emphasize how the Bible applies to our life. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, a pendulum swings one way, and if you try to correct something, it might swing a little bit too far. It's almost like the pendulum swung too far. Uh, and, and it's like, in our great emphasis on, on life application and these different things, it's almost like we've forgotten the foundation, which is and always will be doctrine and theology. And in our attempt to emphasize this vitally important thing, don't get me wrong, life application, we've done away with theology and now we don't know how to apply the Bible to our lives. And, and do you see what's so ironic about that? Uh, the, the reason why I did not like this verse the first time I read it when I was in middle school was because I had a weak understanding of theology. You see, it is when we understand the doctrines of grace, how the Holy Spirit works in the life of an individual, we will understand what it is that Jesus is communicating here, and then we will actually be equipped, actually able to apply these words to our lives. I have often said, and try to prove me wrong, I don't think you can, and I say that humbly, I've often said that if you try and apply the Sermon on the Mount to your life and you don't understand the theology behind it, you will go insane. And Jesus here in verse 8 proves my point. Because I I want you to raise your hand if, if you think that in your own strength, in your own power, you have the autonomous free will ability to make your own heart absolutely pure and completely undefiled. I don't see any hands raised, so do you understand my point? If Jesus' words here are going to have any kind of powerful transformation upon our lives, well, got to go back to the basics, we have to talk about the foundation, which is theology. We need to talk doctrine. We need to know what is Jesus saying here. And so we're going to unpack that all. And, and to start off, we are going to remember our three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. Now, if you remember the last sermon, and if not, you can go back online and listen. I, I made the assertion that in the Beatitudes, verse 6, where Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I said that that is like the great turning point. That is where the shift happens. You have the more passive things, and then now you get to the more active attributes, where we're not just talking about what happens to you, but what are you doing in light of what it is that has happened to you. You know, when we were talking about being poor in spirit, mourning, uh, being meek, those sermons had a more somber tone, a weightier feel to them because we were observing the needs of our soul. But you see, God does not, when God does that to an individual, when he causes them to be uh, poor in spirit, mourning over their sin and these different things, he does not leave them in that state. He may... There may be some of you who are in that state right now. He may leave you in that state for a long time, but he will not leave you there. The good work that he's begun in you, he will bring it about to completion. Our God is immutable. He will not go back upon his, his promises. 
And so we always have to understand that when grace comes upon a man or a woman, an individual, there is a changed life that automatically follows. God in his love and in his mercy gives this person a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and he satisfies that hunger and he continues to satisfy that hunger and we will ultimately be satisfied in the eternal state. And now our lifestyles are such that blessing is coming out of us. God has changed our lives to the point where now we are doing things, now we are impacting the world around us. As our Lord elsewhere says, out, the one who drinks the living water, out of their heart flows living water. So verse 8 is on this other side of the chain. Now we are talking about what, 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 what are you doing? What is the change that has happened? And so uh, what we are going to see as we unpack these things is that whatever it is that Jesus means when he says to be pure in heart, it's going to directly relate to how we interact with other people, how we interact with our society, politics, culture, and, and, and so on and so forth. Put simply, there is uh, going to be some practical changes to how we live our lives in light of what it is Jesus means here about being poor in spirit. Now, it's a saying that you know, the one who defines his terms and distinguishes things well is, is it's a sign of wisdom, and so we are going to start off this sermon the same way as our others by asking a very simple question. We just need to define our terms. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Starting with just thinking about the word pure. You know, what is something that is pure? Well, something that is pure is something that is clean, something that is spotless. It is, it is without a blemish. It is completely undefiled. We read in Exodus about the pure gold that was used to make the Ark of the Covenant. I have a friend who has a, a purebred husky. This dog is something else. This dog, this, this purebred husky means both of his parents were huskies, their parents were huskies, so on and so forth. You know, no other breed of dog was allowed to a breed with this line of huskies because then, well, they would no longer be purebred. They'd, they'd be a, a mixture, a mutt. But you see, you see the, the, the breed, it would have become corrupted, impure. You know, we think about the water that you drink in a plastic bottle. Now, I, I'm sure they do all kinds of stuff to it, but at least if you read the label and if, if you believe it, what it says is that this is purified water meaning they have, it's gone through a process of, of distillation, whatever it might be, to remove any kind of bacteria or anything that might, be, um, that might contaminate the water so it's you know, better for you to, to drink or whatever. So when we're talking about purifying something, we're saying remove the blemish. Get, get, let's get rid of what we don't want. And so we just have, I mean, the... the the undefiled essence of what this thing is. Now, obviously, things get a little intensified when we start talking about purity of the heart. Now, in biblical language, what is the heart? Um, the heart, in this sense of it, refers to, you know, like the soul of a person. 
that spiritual part of a man that you, you can't examine it with a microscope, but, but everyone knows that it's there. We're talking about the, it takes into account the mind, the conscience, the will, the affections. We read in Scripture about uh, men thinking things in their hearts. Now, in ages past, this perhaps did not need uh, so much emphasis and explanation, but I think in our modern context, it's vitally important that we uh, remember and understand that man is more than mere molecules. You see, there are aspects about every single person in this room which cannot be identified or examined with a microscope. That's, that's just the reality. Do you have love for your mother? Well, show me love on a microscope. Take a picture of, of, of love. You can't. All you can do is maybe show me an expression of love. You, you bought her flowers or something, but, but what is that? what's that love that you have for there? You see, there are parts of you that are immaterial. It's just the, the fact of the matter. I was listening to a uh, debate between a, a Christian apologist and, and an atheist recently. And uh, one of the things that was discussed, I, I guess in a previous debate, this atheist had said that, you know, really in the, in the grand scheme of things, all that man is is just cosmic broccoli. Cosmic broccoli, meaning there's nothing really valuable about a person outside of just their DNA, their flesh, whatever. And, and the problem is, that is the worldview, that is the mindset of so many people in our society today. And then people want to talk, wonder why you know, depression rates and, and the suicide rates are up and all these different things. Well, well, when you keep telling somebody that all they are is just, just a bunch of atoms and molecules fizzing around and their ancestors were fish, and, and when you die, we throw dirt on you and, and you really don't matter, it's like, yeah, that's kind of a kind of a, a downer. I mean, of course it's going to you know, sort of bring someone's spirits down a little bit. But, you know, here's an example. I remember I was talking about a particular tragedy uh, that happened recently with a certain person. Um, it's actually, ironically, I put this in my notes before it started happening, but uh, you know, it's, it's been brought up in the news again, the uh, Covenant, the Presbyterian school shooting that happened in, in Tennessee, an absolute uh, tragedy, what happened on there. And the thing that troubles me is whenever tragedies like this happen, the very first thing that people do, don't, doesn't matter what side of, of, of politics you're on, the very first thing that people do is they look for something to blame. Look for something to blame, whether it's, the guns or lack of security at the school, mental illness, violent video games, and then you even get the people who want to blame capitalism or climate change or just, just whatever it is. Everyone wants to find something or someone to blame for the tragedy to advance their political agenda. Which, by the way, I just want to say something. If you're a Christian, when a tragedy like what happened at the Covenant school shooting happens, if the very first thing you do is rush to Facebook or whatever to defend your political position, I, I, I think there's something wrong about that. I think the very first thing that we need to do is weep. 
I, th I think the very first thing that we need to do is, is weep. Well, we, we need to have these conversations. I understand that. Vitally important that we talk about, you know, uh, the, the societal issues. Vitally important that we talk about, uh, you know, gun ownership and these different things from a Christian perspective. But, but, you know, it's like if the very first thing you do when a tragedy happens is rush to either defend or attack the Second Amendment, I, you know, I would call you to examine your heart. At any rate, I was talking to this person about this school shooting that happened, and, and I said, you know something, what I'm not hearing you saying, and what all of the politicians and all of the media moguls and everyone is missing when they talk about this tragedy is they're not even addressing the fact when we're talking about the motive why this person uh, committed this horrible sin and crime. No one's addressing the fact that it is first and foremost a matter of the heart. The, the, the murderer who took the lives of those children did so because they were acting according to the desires of their heart. You see, there is a spiritual element at play. Sin is involved. If you, if you just want to blame external things, but you don't want to get to the very heart of the issue, what, what's going on inside of someone's heart and soul, you're, you're never going to be able to make any progress. And the person I was talking to when I said this laughed at me. And they said, Logan, the heart is what pumps blood. It has nothing to do with the situation. And it's like, now the reason that this person I was talking to gave me this response was because they have been heavily influenced by modern society and secularism. Because the evolutionists, the materialists, the atheists do not have a foundation to address what is common knowledge to everybody, and that is the fact that man has a heart, okay? A soul. Or, or you know, a will, or, or anything else like that. It's like, and it's, what's funny is, the atheists and the materialists who will deny up and down that these things are true, it's funny how they don't live like that. It's, uh, you know, Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They deny what is so self-evident, which is the existence of something akin to a soul that man is not just the sum total of his genetics. Your, your DNA, you know, your DNA is just dancing around and that's all that you are. You're just atoms and molecules fizzing around. It's like, that's what they'll say, but then they'll turn around and, and tell their wives that they love them. They'll cry when their, their dog dies and these different things, which completely contradict the worldview. Because, tell me something, uh, and I would like for someone to give me the evolutionary explanation for why it is that when someone's dog dies, they're sad. Uh, something like that can only be explained if life is a little bit more meaningful than just you evolved from fish, okay? Uh, at, at any rate, this idea, this concept, this, you know, we don't understand really what man is. We don't understand that man is more than just flesh and bone. He is more than just flesh and bone. There's a spiritual component to every single one of us. And, and we as Christians, we need to stand boldly against 
this stuff. We need to stand boldly for the truth. So what we are going to briefly do uh, is talk a little bit about anthropology. Anthropology. Now, would anyone like to define for me the word anthropology? It's okay. We're talking about the, the doctrine of humanity. You know, what is man from a, from a more philosophical point of view? You see, the message of the Christianity, the message of the scriptures, is that man is more than just fizzing atoms and the result of a random evolutionary process. We need to herald the eternal and unchanging truth that man is created by God in the image of God. God made man upright, as Ecclesiastes says. God gave our first father, Adam, a knowledge of righteousness, a knowledge of true holiness. Adam was more than just the dust of the ground, for God had breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. But as we all know, and this is important for what we're talking about tonight, it's not the whole story. For though God created man upright, man fell. He sinned. He broke God's commandments. And thus, all of his posterity fell in him. Romans 5, those who are in Adam die. And though God created man with a heart, and more than just the organ that pumps blood, talking about the mind, the conscience, the will, the affections, all of these things, God gave man his heart, and man's heart fell with him. The human heart, fallen in Adam, became corrupted, defiled, impure. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew chapter 9, Jesus asks a group of scribes, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, Jesus is not asking, why do you think evil in your organ that pumps blood, okay? Uh, Jesus created the human body. I think he knew he was talking about. Now, Jesus is asking them, why? Why? In your hearts, okay? Why? In your soul, in your will, in your conscience, that inward, secret, hidden, spiritual part of a man, why in that part of your being, your heart, are you thinking evil. You see, the fact of the matter is, man's heart, by nature, having been fallen in Adam, is impure. Needs to be purified. It needs to be cleansed. Genesis 6-5 is describing the world before the great flood in the days of Noah, and it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that phraseology there. The thoughts of his heart. The thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so do you see how necessary it is for us to understand that man is more than mere molecules. But he is a fundamentally spiritual being at the same time as he is a physical being. And we also need to recognize that his soul, his heart, that inward secret part of him is immensely corrupted. Now what can be done about this? 
I told the story of my younger self earlier, having come across Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, 8, realizing that my heart was in fact corrupt. I knew that I could not change it. As we read in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Now that is a rhetorical question. The intention of the author there is to say, nobody can make their own hearts pure. No autonomous free will decision can be made by a man to purify his own heart. Why? For the will itself. The will fell in Adam. The will is corrupt. The will is impure. The will is no longer free as in the days of Adam, but has been plunged deep into sin. His will does not have the desire, let alone the capacity, to make itself clean. So what then? Is Jesus, in verse 8, giving us a standard that we cannot attain to on our own? Yes, he is. But that does not leave us hopeless. You see, for we next have to understand the great spiritual work of God that we call regeneration, a, a, a doctrine, a topic that had I understood when I was in middle school, this verse would not have given me so much trouble. And beloved, I pray that this truth can bless you as well. You see, from the very beginning of my sermons on the Beatitudes, I have made the assertion that the Beatitudes are a description of what happens to a man when grace comes upon him. That is especially necessary to understand when we look at this particular text. The simple reality is that when God saves a person, which he does of his own will, remember the words of the apostle, it's not the one who wills, it's not the one who runs or labors. When God saves a person, he purifies their heart. Recently, I preached on Wednesday night, and you can go online and listen to this if you want. Uh, I talked about circumcision. I, t- I talked about uh, where Moses says to, to circumcise the foreskins of your hearts in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I, co- and I connected that passage to what we read in Colossians chapter 2, 11, which says, In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now I know I just read a lot of text there, but what is Paul's point? What Paul is saying is that to the believer, God has made us alive in Christ. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you've been made alive? Jesus, Jesus brings life. Jesus says, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
And he wasn't talking about a sports car. He was saying real, actual life. I mean, I mean meaning, purpose, hope, joy, all of these things. Jesus brings us that. He makes us alive. The, the will, the conscience, the, the affections, the heart. Jesus Christ says that when you're saved, becomes alive. Comes alive. We did not make, but, but it comes by God. It is something that God does. We did not make ourselves alive any more than Lazarus raised himself from the dead. But the same powerful working of God which raised Christ from the dead raised us. And we read that we have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see, and, and if we remember the words of Moses about circumcising the, the foreskin of our hearts, what we come to understand is this. That which was impure in our hearts, God has removed. God has cut off. The foreskin of our hearts have been circumcised. We have been cleansed. You see, even in the days of Moses, although the law was, was a burden and the law had many external uh, rituals and things that the people of Israel had to, to abide by, even in the Old Testament law, the, the true Israel were those who had not only been circumcised on the outside, but had changed hearts. It's the way God has always done it. The way he's always done it. So we have been, in Christ, made alive, cleansed. We've been given a clean heart. Like the promise that we read in Ezekiel, God has removed our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh. We can't purify our own hearts, as, as the Proverbs said, and Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. You see, the heart set on evil is going to stay set on evil. You've heard the saying of Sir Isaac Newton, that which is in motion will stay in motion unless an outside force uh, comes upon it. It's the same thing with our hearts. Our hearts, when they are set on evil, set on sin, it's not, that heart is not going to change itself anymore, according to Jeremiah, than a person can change the color of his skin or the leopard can change his spots. But what we realize is that in Christ Jesus, we've been given a new nature. Our hearts have been changed. We've been given new hearts. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Truly, my beloved, every single Christian hearing my voice right now, you have been washed, you have been cleansed, and you have been sanctified. Born again, Jesus says, of the water and the Spirit, it is a true statement to make of every single Christian alive today that they, in fact, are pure in heart. Now, here's the thing. 
I've just read so many of these verses which talk about God's cleansing power. And, you know, Ezekiel, going to take out the heart of stone, give a heart of flesh. And, and the thing is, I don't think anyone in this room will deny, we still sin. We still sin. Why is this? Well, the simple answer is that though our hearts have been made pure, our flesh remains imperfect. Romans chapter 7 and verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul writes, speaking from his own life experience, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And we could maybe put the word heart in there, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, some theologians, some of my favorite theologians, who we can love and respect, learn a lot from, will say that Paul here is only describing his life uh, prior to regeneration. And I understand some of the argument, but, but I simply can't get that interpretation out of the text. For he says in verse 22 that in his inner being, he delights in the law of God. And this is the same Apostle Paul who in Romans 1 through 3, is going to repeatedly tell you that the unregenerate person does not love God. He says that they're a hater of God, that they don't seek God, that they don't do good. And in Romans chapter 8, he'll say those who are according to the flesh can't please God. And so that same Apostle Paul who says all those things says that he delights in God's law in his inner being. So, The fact of the matter is that Paul is describing the constant struggle of the Christian life. And this becomes more plain in the next two verses. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, Paul describes his present state, his present state as serving the law of God with his mind, with the law of sin, with his flesh. So when I say that all Christians are pure in heart, I'm not uh, repeating the doctrine of, of the Wesleyans and some who would say, talk about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about that. But the truth of the situation is that, that in Christ you, you are something new. You're not sinlessly perfect. You, you will battle against flesh, the flesh till the day that you die. But here's the thing. Don't ever let that become an excuse to remain in sin. Don't ever let that remain an excuse to, to remain in sin because the simple teaching of the Bible is that you've been given new life. You've been born again. You're something different. You're something different than you were before. Christian, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. That is what your baptism represents. You've died to yourself. You've been made alive again in Christ, being united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, Christian, you're alive. Jesus came. He gave you life. He gave it abundantly. You're made alive in Christ. You've become new creations and, they, and then you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that being said, before we move on to discuss how that ties in with the blessing of, of seeing 
God a glorious thing indeed. Let us talk about some of the evidences of having a pure heart. Now, obviously, we've already said that having a pure heart does not mean that I am sinlessly perfect. But what does it mean? For starters, I would repeat what I've already been saying for quite some time. Uh, If it is true that the Beatitudes are characteristic of the man whom God has set his grace upon, then the first evidence that a man is pure in heart is that the Beatitudes are true of his life. Just to remind ourselves of some of the things we've already discussed, the man who is pure in heart will have found himself to be poor in spirit. That is, he's seen the depravity of his sin. He's been led to mourn over his sin. He continues to mourn over his sin to this very day. This person has found himself to be meek, counting himself to be utterly unworthy of any pride or boasting when he looks at himself in respect to God. He has a hunger. He has a thirst for righteousness. He desires to know God, to know God's commandments that they might be fulfilled in his life. He is merciful. He is quick to forgive. He does not seek revenge, but entrusts it all to the Lord as as Jesus Christ himself did. He did not revile back for reviling, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And so the man who is pure in heart is going to be able to look at the Beatitudes and though realize that he doesn't meet it perfectly, But nevertheless, the Beatitudes are an accurate description of his life. I would also say that there is a basic sense in which the pure in heart love God. Romans chapter 8, that that verse that that I love that is so comforting to us all says that God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's that saying? We miss it in light of the larger discussion of the chapter, but Paul in that verse describes the elect, those called according to God's purpose, as those who love God. You realize that when God purifies your heart, he gives you a love for him. In a previous sermon, we looked at the psalmist when he says, you know, as as a deer pants for streams of flowing water, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Because here's the thing. The pure in heart are no longer going to desire that which is impure, but that which is pure. And the most pure being is the Lord God himself. He is purity. Isaiah chapter 6, he is described as holy, holy, holy. And if our hearts are truly pure, they will desire the most pure of all who is God himself we will find our delight in Him. And if we truly love God, then we will love His Word. A child loves the voice of his father, and the children of God love the voice of their heavenly father. I, one of my favorite videos on the internet is this semi-truck driver. He comes home, and, and he, you know, pulls in front of the house, and he, and he gets out of his truck, and there's a little kid about this tall in, in a ball cap, and he runs as fast as he can to go meet his dad, and he throws his hat off, and he just can't, he can't wait to just give his dad a, a big hug, and it's this really, you know, beautiful, uh, I think dads get a bad rap in our culture. I love my dad, and so did this kid, and, and it's like, 
If we're children of God, we're going to love our Heavenly Father. It seems rather obvious. So the pure in heart are going to not only crave their Father's presence, but they're going to have a craving for God's Word. They're going to love His revelation. They love His commands. The sheep just long to hear the shepherd's voice. The famous Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Later in verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. How sad is it that we hardly ever hear Christians saying that they love God's rules, love God's commandments. By the way, the psalmist who wrote that text I just quoted from, his Bible is smaller than mine because... There are parts of my Bible that were written after he died. So when he says things like, my, I am consumed with longing for your rules and I love your commandments, you know what he's talking about? Everyone's favorite two books of the Bible, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that's, that's what he was referring to, by the way. And there are some who would say, those got no relevant for the New Testament church. We're, we're not under the law, man, we're under grace. Yeah, we're not under the law, we're under grace. But even the same apostle who said that, when he is discussing issues in the church, he quotes Leviticus, he quotes Leviticus in settling disputes. So you can't, can't sit there and say that these laws are no longer relevant. We have to understand them correctly in connection with the new covenant, just as we're studying this in context, we need to look at the context of this passage. But when's the last time you ever heard someone say, I love Leviticus. I just, I can't get enough of Leviticus. Well, that's what the psalmist said. So maybe there's, there's something to that. Like I have on my desk right now upstairs a, a six-volume set. It's an ESV reader set bound in calfskin. It's very, very lovely. And four of those six volumes are the Old Testament. The the, Old Test- the, the section which is the Old Testament is about four times the size as that which is the New Testament. And how many Christians just neglect? Completely other, other point. But, you know, that's what the psalmist here is describing. He's saying that he literally, his soul, he is consumed with longing for God's word. Longing for his word. The pure in heart love God's word, they will heartily amen the statement of Paul in 2 Timothy 3 when he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul also writes in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in the former days, referring to all of the prophets, all the scriptures, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Written in the former days, Paul says it's relevant to us now, for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, the pure in heart will find their encouragement, will find their hope in the scriptures. They believe that since all Scripture is God-breathed, that in the Scriptures they find all that they need for teaching, all that they need for every good work. Like Psalm 119, they will delight in God's Word and hide it away in their hearts. 
Now, if these things are true, what, do we, what, have, what did I say earlier about God's word? It transforms us. It changes us. And so if a person is, is loving God's word, God's law, the way that the author of Psalm 119 is, it, their, their lives are going to reflect that. Uh, if these things are true, then the necessary implication is that the pure in heart are then going to walk in righteousness. They are going to walk in the newness of life that the apostle spoke of. And that's the thing with these beatitudes after verse 6. These are attributes which come out of us and begin to affect how we treat other people, how we interact with the world around us, with society, with, with politics, and, and, and everything. The pure in heart do not walk in darkness, but walk in light. The living water that they drank does not remain hidden inside of them, but rivers of it flow out of their hearts. Though in this life they are not perfect, as I will always affirm, they nevertheless are walking in God's ways. 2 Timothy 2, 21-22 says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, all the, the good things Paul's writing about there, they all come from a heart that's been changed, all come from a heart that's been made pure that has had that circumcision made without hands and by abstaining from unrighteousness abstaining from what is dishonorable god can use this person in his kingdom as vessels for honorable use ready for every good work so when we are walking in the light when we are obeying god's law pursuing righteousness mortifying our flesh that is the greatest evidence that a man is is pure in heart you see, no amount of secular psychology or program or system or whatever can help you and can change you the way that the Spirit of God can using the Word of God. A man who is pure in heart is the man described in the Beatitudes. He loves God. He loves God's Word and he is striving to obey God's Word. Now, I, I, I pray to God that I've, hope, I've, I've faithfully expounded upon what it means to be pure in heart. Now, that hopefully we know what it means to be pure in heart. How are the pure in heart blessed? Jesus says they are blessed, for they shall see God. Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 through 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. See, in that text that I just read, the one who ascends the Lord's hill, stands in the holy place, who seeks the face of God is the one with a pure heart. Again, Hebrews 12:14 says, "Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." 
you see there is a very, very consistent theme in Scripture of the connection between purity of heart or holiness, to use that term, and seeing God. These things aren't related. They are inseparable. You don't get the one without the other. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now what does Jesus mean here? Well, as always, there is a a partial fulfillment in a future one. There's the now and the not yet. Uh, in what sense? So th- there's part of this blessing that we experience in this life. Remember, Jesus said, I came that they have life, have it abundantly. Our lives that we live here and now are actually changed and enhanced and empowered by God's grace. So there, there's a sense that we get some of this blessing now, but the fullness of it comes later. So in what sense do we see God here in this life. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, that, that wonderful text which describes how faith has powerfully worked in the lives of, of many of God's saints down through the ages, we read that it was by faith Moses endured as seeing him who was invisible. In Psalm 17, King David is describing his uh, various uh, plights, his various trials in his life of the many wicked and, and evil men who were seeking to destroy him. And he describes how, something that we've all experienced, how the wicked prosper in this life. He says, referring to the wicked, and he's praying, he says, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And then he says in verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You see, the thing that carried David along throughout the various and sundry trials of his life was the presence of God. Was the presence of God that which he describes here as beholding God's face, being satisfied in God's likeness. Now, obviously, these things cannot be taken so rigidly, so literally, for God is spirit. He does not have a face. Uh, What David is describing is the ever-present reality that God was with him in all that he did in his life. You see, as Christians, we have the eyes of faith. And with the eyes of faith, we can behold wondrous realities that are just utterly unknown to the non-believing world. For we see God. We see Him working in creation. We see Him working in history. We see Him working in providence. The atheist says, this is all just a bunch of random stuff that just, just happens for no reason. We're cosmic broccoli atoms fizzing and and, and buzzing around and just a random chain of meaningless events. But see, as Christian, we understand that that, that there is no meaningless events. All things that happen in our lives are being governed by the providence of God. God is accomplishing His purposes. And with the eyes of faith, we also see that God is shepherding us, just as David called God his shepherd, leading him beside still waters. And Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, and that as the good shepherd, I, he, I know my sheep, and, and, and my sheep know me. And so with the eyes of faith, 
We truly know God. I'm not going to say his name, but he's someone you all know. And I have been blessed many times with the opportunity to hear this man pray. And I, I, would, I, would, I would travel a great distance to hear him pray. Because when this man prays, he is talking to someone he knows. He is talking to someone he knows. It, it, in this life, Christians, you know God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says that if anyone loves God, there it is again, the, the righteous have a love for God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. We hear his voice. We see him working in our lives. When troubles come, we go to his word for encouragement. We bend the knee to him in prayer that we might share sweet communion and fellowship with him. There's a beautiful sense in which we, in this life right now, at this very moment, if you're a Christian, see God. By the way, another evidence that you are truly pure in heart is that you would actually desire this fellowship that I'm talking about. You see, what's so incredible about the blessing described by Jesus of seeing God is that it is something which is only attractive to those who are pure in heart. I mean, think about some of the other things Jesus says. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, unmerciful people desire mercy. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you've ever read a history book, you know that there have been all kinds of proud, arrogant men who wanted the earth, like the actual earth. They wanted to take it over. So like some of these things would be desirous to anyone, but, but to see God... You see, only the pure in heart desires that. Only the pure heart desires that which is pure. Only the one whom God has called and regenerated seeks him. That is just the scriptural reality. And so this, Jesus is talking about something which is only attractive to those who are pure in heart. And that is, I, I just think, wonderful. But of course, we always understand that the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing is only in the life to come. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, life as a Christian in the new covenant age is a beautiful Wonderful thing. I, my brother Al here sings the, the, the song, I'll Fly Away, and obviously, as you know, the song was written, Just a Few More Weary Days and Then. He changes it. He says, Just a Few More Glorious Days and Then. And he says, Because, Lord, every day with you is glorious. And that's it's true. That's true. And so we are blessed beyond measure in this life. But I don't, I don't want anyone to mistake me. The life of a Christian is is, is radically superior to the life of a non-believer. We are blessed beyond measure in this life in terms of the blessings that God bestows upon us, our, our seeing Him, our knowing Him, His fellowship, the, the gifts that He gives us of the church and His Word and everything like that. But when Paul compares the state of his present life with the life to come, he, he says that, that is much better. He says, Now we only see in a mirror dimly. Or that verse can get translated as, 
as like foggy. Like it's, it's, you can't quite make everything out. A mirror dimly, the ESV says. And he says, but then, face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Seems plain to me that the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing will come after the, the, the final resurrection, when we are in that, that e- eternal state Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Now what will it be like, you ask me, to truly see God in this sense? I'm sure that's what everyone here wants to know. What's it like? What's it like? I would like to know as well. Um, You see, I don't know exactly what that will be like. The Bible, surprisingly, talks very, very little about what heaven will be like. Talks a lot about hell, really does, very, very little about what heaven will be like. And maybe God does that because he doesn't want us to be, you've heard the saying, uh, you know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're so earthly good. You don't want to be like the guys who are locked in their basement right now with the countdown waiting for the rapture and they're not in society, they're not influencing the culture. That, that's just, that's not how God wants us to live. And so maybe that's why he's told us a little about heaven because it's so wonderful, it's so glorious that we would just kill ourselves and try to get there as fast as we can. I don't know. But, so, so all I know is this. It's going to be wonderful. It, it, it really is. And I don't think that we're going to see God as in seeing that like spiritual essence of who he is because he is immaterial. He created matter. He does not have a physical form. So it's not like, like that. I, I do believe that we will see God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. He resurrected with a body. We're going to resurrect with bodies. And, and so we will see him. And, and I truly long for that day. I, I don't want to sound pious, but I, I want to see him. I want to see my Savior's face. I was telling, I've told this story so many times, but you're going to hear it again because I was talking about it this morning. Um, my, uh, my, my great-grandfather is a preacher, Clifton, West Virginia, and he had diabetes real bad. Um, that's why I have to be, pay attention to my sugar. I have diabetes on both sides of my family. Um, not that that's relevant, but anyway, so he's sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor's saying, Les, you don't do something about your health, like, you're going to die. And so he says, well, I can't wait to meet Jesus. He squeezed his wife's hand, and he died. He's right there. And, and, and so that, I think, is the heart. I think that's a pure heart right there. You know, uh, uh, Acts chapter 7 Stephen's martyrdom. Before he dies, he, he gets this vision and he, and he sees the Lord Jesus waiting for him. And that's, that's about all we're told. I can't, I can't really go into more, much more detail than that. Uh, you know, when God makes an end of speaking, so should we. But I know this. That I know that it's something to look forward to. I know that uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians that Paul talks about this uh, eternity and the resurrection as something to give us hope. 
And so I, I don't know what it all entails, that you know, we will see God face to face, we will see him as he is. I just, I just don't know. What I can say is that we will behold God, we will have a knowledge of him that is going to be far clearer than we could ever obtain in this life. And oh, how sweet of a thought that is. How tragic is it that the reprobate, those who do wicked and despise God, will not ever inherit this blessing? But then again, it's, it's, it's not a blessing that they desire. Uh, only the pure in heart desire to see God. But all these blessings come by faith. They come by faith. And I promise you this. Who you are, if you're listening online, you're in here, if you submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Him, if you grasp on His promises by faith, these blessings will come your way. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. It's a promise of Jesus Christ. And in the meantime... Is it not then sweet and beautiful for the pure in heart to contemplate the fact that there will come a day when we are with God, we will know Him with a far superior intimacy than is made available in this life? Does setting the eye of, of your faith upon this not just like make all the troubles of this world seem as though they're nothing? There will be many, many, many afflictions in all of our lives. There will be people who desire to hurt us and, and, and to harm us. We're going to suffer loss. We're going to experience pain and difficulty and heartbreak and so many different things. But do you know something? We know God. We will one day know Him more fully. Although now we see in a mirror dimly, we will then see Him face to face. What more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? That's why discontentment is such a grievous sin. Such a grievous sin. To, as a Christian, say, Lord, I, I, it's not enough. These troubles are too much. And, and to become discontent. Do you not realize how richly you have been blessed as a believer? You say, tell me about how much I've been blessed. I, I lost a son to, to the heroin. I... I suffered this thing and that thing and, and I can't afford my rent this month or whatever it is. Listen, listen, you know God. I, I realize that now you only see in a mirror dimly, but then you shall know faith face to face. Hold on to that promise. Cling on to that promise. I, I read in a commentary somewhere recently about you know, some of the, the things in Scripture about uh, the future blessings and, and the eternal state and stuff like that. It's like the Bible tells us more about that stuff and not because of the future, but the reason that the Bible tells us about that is for us now. It's so that, not that we are the guys in the basement of the church counting down to the rapture, but that we have this, this hope we have this, this, this hope about where, where things are, are going. That, that's why the Bible, that's why Jesus says this. He, he says this that we might be encouraged and nourished by it. As Thomas Watson said, often look upon him with believing eyes whom you hope to see with glorified eyes. Again, I, you know, 
I would be unable to unpack fully what all of this truth means. It's far beyond my own comprehension. I, I think it's much too heavenly, much too spiritual for us to understand in our lives. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think, firstly, we, we just think about it. I think we meditate upon it. I think we allow it to do wondrous things for our hearts. But in the meantime, I think we should remember that this blessing comes to those who are pure in heart. So ask yourself, is God making my heart pure? Let this truth fuel and inspire us to live godly lives in the here and the now. Not that we are saved by our good works or anything like that, but always remembering still, as Hebrews says, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And so let the awesome wonder of this truth inspire us to live holy lives totally and completely dedicated to the glory of our great God, always abiding in the cleansing power of Christ Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Thomas Watson, who I quoted a minute ago, he's probably one of the most quotable men I've ever read, he said, God is in love with the pure heart, for he sees his own picture drawn there. May the Holy Spirit impress this truth upon all of our hearts and continue that purifying process. It has already begun. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, dear God, but now we see in a mirror dimly, though, not, though now we are often distracted by the troubles of this world and the temptations of, of the devil, which take our, trouble our hearts, take our hearts off of your grace and the blessings we have in you, Father, we just pray that you would give us the grace sufficient to fight off against these, these evil things which seek to destroy our souls. Oh, Father, we long the day when we are in your presence more fully than we could ever obtain in this life. Oh, dear God, we just pray for pure hearts that you would continue to purify them all the more. Oh, Father, we pray that our pure hearts would affect the way that we live in this world and in society. We pray that others would see it, respond to it. I pray that you would do a mighty work of the Spirit of God in this nation and in the world today to draw a massive number of people unto your name, purifying the heart, the hearts that this world might truly be changed, that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as your promise tells us. Dear Lord, we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.